do not follow man-made fancy or fable, but the word of the living God. He alone has claim to our hearts and allegiances. Let us heed him as he speaks from his word. Our first passage this morning is Luke 24, 36 through 49. Hear the word of the Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Second passage is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, we turn to you now, prepare to hear and reflect on your word, so that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under it, that we might come to know and follow it, and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. 
So I have to start with a confession, which is just that this is not what you're supposed to say at the start of an Easter sermon, but I am just not that much of a holiday person. I mean, it's great in the sense of like, you know, you come to church and I, you know, I love the church service and we, you know, say Christ is risen and sing the resurrection hymns and reflect on that. And then we, we go eat a lot of like ham and good food and that's great. And, you know, the kids like eat some of their chocolate bunnies that are um, large enough that my wife gave me a look when I came home with them. And, you know, <laughs> and I eat some of their candy, right, and say that it's taxes. And, you know, we do the, the ordinary thing. And it's all great. But then, you know, the next day comes and you're like, well, we spent a lot of money and time on that. And now we're back to normal life. I think all of us struggle with that. People talk about a sort of post-holiday slump that you feel where that week after the holidays are done, you're like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, it's Monday again and I have to go to work. And, um, and people can, can struggle with that. And as I reflected on that and as I reflected on this, what I want us to do this morning is just suggest that one of the problems with that is that, well, it's great to celebrate Easter the holiday, if our experience of Easter is like that, that often really reflects the fact that we haven't understood Easter. And I don't just mean we haven't understood kind of the trappings of the holiday, because that just doesn't make sense to me at all, right? The big pastel rabbit that lays eggs and all of those things. But I mean that we have not understood what Easter says about Jesus Christ, both in the past and in the present, in terms of what it means for our lives. And because of that, it can be that kind of high that doesn't really do anything the next week. And so here's what I want to do. What I want us to just walk through is first one way or one set of ways that we can kind of get Easter wrong, and then two realities about Easter that should impact our lives. We're going to say that Easter is not about a subjective attitude, but rather about an objective event that offers us spiritual life. It's not about a subjective attitude, but about an objective event that offers us spiritual life. First of all, it's not a subjective attitude. What I mean by subjective attitude is there's a set of ways that we can treat Easter that are just sort of about this eternal, internal emotional thing. Like first you can just use Easter as a metaphor for spring, right? Which some people do, and spring is great. The days are getting longer, and it's getting warmer, and stuff is growing in our yard, and I can make the kids go play outside rather than bug me. I mean, spring is wonderful, but, um, but our temptation then is to make Easter just like a metaphor for spring, right? To be like, oh, my garden is alive, and the trees are alive, and Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Maybe that seems a little too shallow, because it does, and it is kind of shallow. But, you know, people, some people have that, and then some people try to say, okay, well, we need, we need a little more Jesus, right? We need a little more of Scripture in how we think about it. So instead, we might use Easter as a metaphor for hope. It's like a story that one of those motivational speakers would tell you about how, you know, we, are, we all face hard times in our lives and dark nights of the soul, and sometimes it even feels like you're dying. But Jesus, he was crucified, and he rose from the dead, and so you can just really feel hopeful that, you know, even though you feel like you're dying, and even though life is really dark for you, that you can rise again. Now, hope is a good thing, and there's an appropriate hope we should have as Christians— but that's still, that metaphor of hope still falls really short of what Easter is meant to be about. 
The easiest way to see that is to recognize that if you use Easter that way, Jesus doesn't actually matter very much to Easter. You can accomplish almost the same thing if I got up here and told you a story about, like, Bob the accountant, who got unjustly fired from his job, but worked really hard and eventually got an even better job, right? I mean, it doesn't have the supernatural trappings of Jesus, but that story serves exactly the same purpose if it's just kind of a fable about giving us hope in life's hard times. There are other ways we can treat Easter as subjective. We can make it primarily about just feeling inspired. We can use it to make a moral point. Jesus is an example of how we get rewarded after we suffer for doing good things. And again, none of those are exactly bad, but none of those are what Easter is really about. The problem with all of those subjective approaches to Easter is that they do not reckon with what Scripture says about our condition as human beings. Which is to say, what is the problem with people in the world? Is it just that we have seasonal affective disorder from a long winter and really need spring? Is it just that we lack inspiring examples? Is it that we just need some moral instruction to make us better people? Scripture would tell a different story than any of those questions. If you will look with me at our second reading from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is about to describe the impact of Jesus' resurrection, but first he wants us to understand our condition. And so if you start in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And he's going to go on, but that you were dead in your trespasses, that's the central image that he uses in this passage. Um, It doesn't say, notice, that we're weak or sick or imperfect, but that we are dead in our sins. We might ask, okay, what does that mean? In what sense are we dead? Well, if you keep reading, in the next two verses, he lays it out. He says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a lot there, but let me try to break it down for you. What Paul is essentially saying is that our deadness in our sin is we're spiritually dead because we are trapped in sin. And the way he shows this is he names three sources of our sin. He says the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, by which he means Satan, and the passions of our flesh. The world, the devil, and our flesh. And what Paul is saying is that in ourselves... All of our choices ultimately stem from one of those three places. And thus, all of them are sinful. So he would say some of our choices come from our flesh, our body and mind, internally. They are about serving ourselves and our appetites. And that can include obvious choices to serve our appetites, like like the temptation I'll struggle with with the ham at lunch in just a little while. But that can also... Um, mean deeper things. It's my desire for comfort, and my desire for pleasure, and my desire for safety, and all the ways that I just kind of look out for number one, so the flesh. And then some of our choices come from the world. And interestingly, often those choices are the reasons I deny my flesh, right? So like, in my flesh, I would eat candy continually, but because I want the world to look at me a certain way, um, I impose limits on myself to try to keep myself from, <laughs> from the consequences of what would happen if I ate candy constantly. The world can also take lots of forms. It can be my desire for approval, or my desire for recognition, or my desire to appear respectable to people. And then scripture would add, there is also Satan, 
the devil. He's at work in the world. And that's often more invisible than the first two forces, but there are times that we find ourselves doing things that don't come, obviously, from either place, and scripture would say that that's because there's also spiritual forces that are at work in the world and in us. But here's the issue for Paul. Any choice we make arising from any of those three things is sin. It's sin because it is not a choice we are making arising out of a love for God and desire for his glory as our ultimate aim. And importantly, that means for Paul and for all of Scripture that even our good deeds are often sin. When we do good things out of pride to puff ourselves up and make ourselves feel better than other people, or when we do good things out of a desire for other people to notice and approve and treat us a certain way, or when we do good things to try to pay for the bad things we've done as if we can save ourselves and pay for our own sins, all of that, Scripture would say, is sin. And then also all the bad things that we do. (laughs) True righteousness only arises from a heart living not out of the flesh, not out of the forces of the world, not out of anything except for a love of God. We love other things, right? I'm not saying that we don't enjoy things in the world or have things that we love, but we love them because of and out of that love for God. That's what ultimately motivates us. And so as long as we are in bondage to the world or the flesh or the devil— We cannot escape and actually live that kind of life that is meant to love God. And that's why Paul finishes this section in Ephesians 2 by describing us as, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's saying that it's not just that occasionally we do bad stuff, and that's what we need Jesus for. It's that something about our very nature is corrupted and messed up. Which is why deadness is the picture that Paul chooses. See, if we were spiritually weak, if we weren't trapped fully, but just sort of like had some issues, then he might just say, well, here's some exercise to do, and get stronger, and then you can, you know, be a good person. If we were just spiritually sick, it might be, well, here's some treatments you can take occasionally, and then you're fine, and you can, you know, you can solve this thing. But we are dead. There is nothing that we can do in ourselves to reverse our situation. There is no earthly remedy for our problem. And that image of our spiritual deadness is why those subjective approaches to Easter just aren't sufficient. Because you do not go to a corpse and say, hey, it's spring, cheer up! You do not go to a corpse and say, you know, like, I've got some good news for you, man. Like, you can, you can get through this thing. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You do not go to a corpse and give it moral lessons or inspiring slogans and expect that corpse to somehow come to life. What we need is a resurrection. We need a resurrection, Scripture would say. So remember that. That's our condition. We need a resurrection. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But first, before we talk about that resurrection we need, we have to talk about Jesus' resurrection. So in Luke 24, we um, we heard about that. And what we need to recognize in the way that the Gospels record it is that Easter celebrates an objective event. Easter celebrates an objective event, which is to say, plenty of those inspiring stories we talked about, and I think plenty of us in our culture think about the resurrection as sort of an inspiring story that could be true and could be not. It's describing like an emotional or a spiritual reality. In fact, some people come out and seem to and say that. They would say like, well, you know, what's happening in the Gospels is that Jesus' followers, they're really sad because Jesus just died. 
And what happens is they have this, this internal feeling of his presence, like Jesus is really just near to them, and they're moved in their hearts, and so they use this language of resurrection to describe it. But it's not how Luke tells the story. So Jesus appears to his disciples, starting in verse 37. And we are told that they are startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Which is to say the disciples are actually kind of thinking exactly the way we just described, right? They're primed to maybe see like some vision or spirit of Jesus. They see Jesus and they think it's a spirit. But Jesus specifically calls out that wrong idea. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus says, I am not a spirit. I'm not a figment of your minds. I am flesh and bone. And then he proves it to them. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, meaning the places where the, the nails had pierced his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, which I love because that's such a human detail, right? Like that, that in their joy, they still can't believe it. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Which is to say, he's like, ghosts don't do this, right? This is a, I'm taking this greasy piece of fish, and I'm going to eat it so you can watch. And you can see the bones, you know, on the, on the plate and the grease on my fingers. I am demonstrating to you that I am an actual physical human being raised from the grave. And then he adds to that one more evidence, which is he stresses that that's what scripture had always taught. Um, in verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Which is to say, you should have expected this, this anticipation in the Old Testament of death being undone. So here's the point of that for Luke. It recognizes that one of our temptations will be to turn the resurrection into an allegory. Or spiritualize it. That Jesus Christ, um, that he's somehow just an idea or a feeling. But all the details of Luke's account are meant to directly challenge that way of thinking and to insist that Jesus Christ is risen objectively in history and in truth. That he, this fully God but also fully human being guy, he was physically alive in the world, first of all, right? While Jesus is both divine and human, like he walked around and talked, and if you met him, you could have like shook his hand. He was this, this human being who was alive, and then he was killed. They drove spikes through his wrists, and they stabbed a spear into his side until his heart burst, and he was dead. And then he stayed dead, right, in that tomb. His heart was still, and his brain did not have any activity, and rigor mortis set in, and he was dead for two days. And then he rose again, in that his heart actually contracted, and that congealed blood pulsed back through his veins, right? And if you were there, you could have seen that. Like, the, the, the tomb rolls away, and you would have seen him physically emerging with, with like, goosebumps on his arms from the cold air. And, I mean, he was alive again objectively. That's what Easter proclaims about history. And the reason that matters is because it is that objective resurrection of Jesus that is then meant to objectively change something about our hearts. It isn't a metaphor, but instead, Scripture would say that Easter offers us spiritual life, a new spiritual life, a spiritual resurrection. And that is how Paul explains what it means to be a Christian. Remember, if you go back to Ephesians 2, 
He says in the first three verses, we are dead, right? And then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's a complicated sentence, but here's the, the core thing is that it says God made us alive, right? That's the subject and the verb, past tense. That's what God did in Jesus Christ. We were spiritually dead, and now we have spiritual life. And all the stuff around it is saying, first, why does God make us alive? Well, Paul says it's because of his love and grace. Specifically, he says it's not because of us. It's while we're still dead in our trespasses, not because we were great or something, but Jesus chose to love us. And it also tells us how God made us alive, but we'll come back to that in just a minute. First, I want to talk about that just idea of being spiritually alive, right? What does that mean? <laughs> well, Paul, as he goes on to develop it here in Ephesians 2, says there's really two parts of it. First, he says, the first part of our spiritual life is having faith. But stop, because that word faith gets used so many bad ways. So, all right, first let's just look at the text, and then we're going to talk about what faith is, all right? So first in verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Now first we've got to define faith, all right? Faith when scripture uses it, in the abstract, it just means what we put our trust and live our lives for. To have faith in something means putting your trust and living your life for something. And in that sense, we all put our faith in different things. In fact, when we talked about the world and the flesh and the devil, that's kind of what we're talking about. If we put our faith in ourselves, in our strength or our knowledge or our ability to really get things done, right, that's putting our faith in the flesh. If we put our faith in someone or something else, if we put our faith in, like, a spouse or friends or our children or in some institution, like some state or group that we're a part of, that's the world. We're putting our faith in the world. If we put our faith in some false god, Scripture would tell us that that's actually putting our faith in the dark spiritual powers of Satan. We put our faith in some false thing or things, and then that is what traps us in sin. So when Paul talks about faith, then, of course, he's not talking about faith in those things, right? He's talking about faith in Jesus. To have saving faith means to say Jesus and his work, that is what I am trusting in. That Jesus and his kingdom, that is what I am living my life for. That is faith. But notice that for Paul, that faith is a result of being made alive. It is, he says, a gift of God. Which is to say, we don't arrive even at that faith and trust because of our good works. If we did, we could feel like we're better than other people, and we could boast. But Paul says, you are saved by grace, and while that grace comes through faith, even that faith is not something you ultimately get to take credit for. It's a result of being made spiritually alive. So that faith is one of the effects of being spiritually alive. And then it also means doing good. Doing good, in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Again, no, we probably need to stop and define our terms. When we read good works, I feel like that can get us in trouble too, especially because we live in this world where we talk about people and we're like, they're a good person. And by that we mean like they're not a remarkably bad person, right? You know, we mean like they don't beat their kids and they're not in prison and, you know, and so they're a good person. And that's not what scripture means. It describes our good works as those works which God prepared in advance for us to do, which is to say they're works that are done to serve God and his purposes in the world. Works done living out his calling to bless the world and love our neighbor and give all praise and glory to his name. He says that we are called, then, as part of our spiritual life to do those good works. But notice again that that is also something that's a result of being made alive. Right? If you look at it, we are God's handiwork. First, God fashions us. We're pictured there like like a tool or an object that God makes. We're created in Christ Jesus, and that means recreated, right? The idea is that we are dead, and by being given life, we're being recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works. And the works we're doing, God had prepared in advance for us to do. So again, you have that emphasis on God's grace and the fact that we can't take credit for this thing. It's only something that he's doing in Jesus, all right? So, that's the big idea, that we are spiritually dead and need to be made spiritually alive. But then one last question, what does that have to do with Easter? You might have already been anticipating this, but here's the crucial connection. That spiritual life that God gives to us is a direct result of the new life Jesus objectively accomplished in his resurrection. That spiritual life that God works in us directly results from the life that he worked in Jesus in the resurrection. Start in verse 4 and 5 once more. You'll notice that it says that God made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus, right, we said in the resurrection, he was dead, and then he was raised again, But scripture would say the means that he was raised was that God in his power, through the Holy Spirit, worked in the dead body of Jesus Christ and filled it with life that then caused it to raise. The power of God poured into him and transformed his body into a resurrected body. And that power is still in Jesus Christ, right? Um, And and the hope then that we have is that that same power is at work in us. That when we come to Jesus, the idea of scripture is that we are connected to him, we are united with him, in such a way that it's actually that power that then flows into and transforms us. In in Ephesians chapter 1, a little bit before what we read, Paul actually makes this statement that really Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 is kind of fleshing out. But he says this while he's praying for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So what Easter celebrates is this incredible announcement that Jesus was raised, and so as we come to him, In our spiritual deadness, we can actually be made alive again in the same way that he was. That does hold the promise of future resurrection. If you were here for our sunrise service, we talked about that. But it's a promise that finds its beginning in this life. That what Christianity is meant to be is a spiritual resurrection for us who are dead in our sins right now. So as we close, 
just want to ask, how should that meet us in our lives? If all of that is true, how should that meet and change us? And I kind of want to just speak to two groups of us, two different places that we can be at in relation to that story. Because one is that some of us have never experienced that resurrection power for ourselves. We treat Jesus as a metaphor and an inspiration and a moral example, all that's fine, but we haven't experienced that kind of resurrection life in our hearts. And I don't by that just mean irreligious people, to be clear. Many people who claim the name of Christ have never tasted of that kind of life-giving power. If that is you, then Easter is an invitation to life. This is the day when you are being invited to recognize the deadness of sin and to find hope in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The risen Christ is calling you to cast yourself on him, to put your trust in him and place your hopes in him and so be made new. And then two, a second group, many of us have made that commitment. And some of us are really feeling it, but many of us, I know, we've tasted some of that power, we've seen and felt God's work in our life, but it is also hard. (laughs) And the world is full of sorrow and struggle, and we can feel discouraged, and we can be like, I theoretically agree with that, but where is that power of resurrection right now? And if that is you, two things. First of all, that struggle is what it means to be alive. (laughs) Corpses don't struggle, right? They are totally comfortable in their graves. Only living things can struggle spiritually in those ways. And the reality of spiritual life is that while it is resurrected life and real and true and powerful, it will be hard and full of suffering and struggle until Christ returns. But if that is you, also, Easter is a proclamation of hope for this reason. That the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is it working? Even in the days when you struggle to see and feel it, it is pouring into you, and it will bring its work to completion. The Father did not abandon Jesus to the grave, but raised him to new life. And as we put our trust in Jesus Christ, just as sure as that resurrection 2,000 years ago is the promise that God will not abandon us, but will continue to raise us to new life. Father, speak that hope to our hearts this Easter. Call us to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and work in us all that is pleasing to your will by the power of your resurrection and your grace. Lord, make all that is dead in us come alive. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.